0: today on the pod we are going to discuss the terrible baseball team that we root for the new york metropolitans on the line with me as always mr adam goodstone how you doing today Well,
1: so this is our, our third attempt at trying to record this, so we're having some some technical difficulties this morning. But the good news for our one or two Shh. listeners out there is uh, we're going to be we- very well practiced.
0: Shh. We're very professional podcast. That's blasphemy.
1: Everyone's got issues these days. We're uh, a <laughs> we're a couple hundred miles away from each other. We're just we're just trying our best. But I'm I'm doing okay.
0: All right. Um. Anyways, let's talk about. The Mets. Uh, today is uh, July fourth. Happy birthday, America! And America's uh, not having a great birthday, but maybe <laughs> next year America will be doing better on its birthday. That's what, at least what I hope. I hope so. But uh, on, but with that, um, we're supposedly three weeks away from America's pastime coming back, uh, which you know would be probably the first major American sport to come back. Uh, I think you made a good point uh, when we were talking offline yesterday that of all the major sports, baseball is probably the one that has the best chance of actually coming back and having a full season despite uh, all these spikes in coronavirus. I think that basketball will get through
1: its bubble. If people actually stay in the bubble, which I guess is a question. um, But what I think baseball's got going for it is you stay pretty far away from each other. So what we've seen is like outdoor transmission of the virus seems pretty low. They've done a ton of testing of people who were at the um, civil rights protests. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of people who got sick. I mean, most of those people were wearing masks. But it seems like if you're playing baseball, you're outside, you really don't have to stand that close to people. It seems like if someone gets it, it's not like in football or basketball where you just assume the whole team would get sick. You probably could have one or two guys go down. And baseball has like these rosters now. They have 60 eligible players. So you could have a couple players go down and still be able to to finish. Um, so it might make it hard for like fantasy baseball, where if you draft someone and they're they're not playing, that's kind of going to screw you because they are going to be out for two weeks to you know six weeks. But I think that baseball, I think baseball will get through the season. They have a yeah. lot of stuff going for it.
0: Yeah, and further to your point, uh, not only will these teams be carrying sixty players on their roster, but. Uh, since there's not going to be minor league baseball this year, every t- organization literally has a player pool of like over 200 guys that they theoretically could choose from going through all their minor league systems. Like there's just well, so 60 many
1: players on their roster. I think they're, they're, their rosters will be smaller than that. They're going to cut them down. But you have a player pool where if you have a guy get sick or injured, you could pull them up. So it's not like in basketball where you have a team like um, the Brooklyn who, like Nets. The, the Nets, who are like just running out of players. Like, if DeAndre yeah. and Dinwiddie don't play, they already don't have Irving. Like, they don't have enough players to, like, feel the basketball team.
0: Yeah, well, um, I think what I'm trying to say is in basketball, you have your 15-man roster and maybe a couple of G League guys that you theoretically can pull some players from. Whereas a baseball organization, you literally have hundreds of guys right. that, are your, that you have rights to. So even if, you know, mm. something happened... To your 60-player pool, I don't know how that's going to work. As far as like if guys get hurt or sick, can you replace guys on the 60-person player pool? But since there won't be minor so. leagues this year,
1: if they get hurt, you literally have can.
0: hundreds. You literally have hundreds on top of the 60 guys that you're going to be able to choose from. You have hundreds of players in your organization to at least fill out to at least fill out a roster. Uh, so again, again, that makes it. A greater likelihood of playing. Also, baseball is just not nearly as respiratory a sport as uh, basketball or hockey or football. And most of the teams play outdoors,
1: and not that close another... to each
0: other. The pitcher's nowhere near from the rest of the fielder. Right, your pitcher yeah. could
1: not to make light of it, but your your pitcher could be like coughing from COVID, and I don't think those the viri particles are going to make it into the the, re- the respiratory systems of the other players on the team. And they could just wear a mask. Like if you have a team where you have two guys go down because they're sick, you could play baseball in a mask. I think basketball yeah. or football in a mask would be really hard, just because of how quickly they respirate. You could wear a mask in baseball; they'd be totally fine. I think I think baseball, if they're smart, they should they should be okay.
0: Yeah. Yep. All, all good. Not points. that either
1: one of us are epidemiologists, but I am very <laughs> neurotic, so that that does help.
0: Uh, anyways, let's let's move on and start talking about this uh, twenty twenty Mets season. Uh, And I think it's important to note that uh, this is only going to be a 60-game season, which is definitely going to feel like a sprint compared to our normal 162-game season. And uh, one thing we wanted to talk about was uh, just really how, I mean, not just how we think this team will look from an on-field perspective with the players that they have, but how uh, the nuances of this 60-game season will affect the Mets Uh, So we'll start with the fact with the way the uh, the schedule uh, is going to work. So uh, what baseball has decided to reduce travel, uh, the Mets will only play teams from the NL East and AL East. Uh, They'll play 40 games against the other four teams in the NL East and then 20 games against The AL East, uh, earlier in the uh, offseason when baseball was trying to negotiate, there was a rumor that uh, for geographical reasons they were going to swap Atlanta and Pittsburgh, which would have been great for the Mets.
1: Uh, Fantastic.
0: Yeah, that's not going to happen now, which I think is a very big deal because uh, Atlanta might have the best roster in the National League. or at least maybe Dodgers. top 2 or 3. The Dodgers probably, have
1: the best The Dodgers have the best roster in the National League. That,
0: that that's true. But Atlanta it's probably not even has close. Yeah. Atlanta probably has the second best roster in the National League. Atlanta the has Nationals a lot. Nationals won of,
1: the World Series last year. I know they they lost a couple players, but yeah, yeah. they
0: lost Well, here's the thing with Washington. So uh my take on them, uh, they lost Rendon. He's not there anymore. He was pr- arguably Their best player or top two player along with Juan Soto was their best player. I agree with Uh,
1: that. I think they would agree with that too.
0: Yeah. Rendon though was their second best player. He's not there anymore. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman and their pitcher at Joe Ross has already said that uh, they're not going to uh, participate in baseball this year because they have uh, family members who are high risk. Also, a lot of times you see World Series hangover after winning. I think World Series hangover and then add on a uh, worldwide pandemic and you know maybe less motivation than players on other teams to keep themselves in shape i, I do question just how good the washington nationals are actually going to be this year coming Still off of have have a good championship. pitching
1: staff and a good pitching staff in a shortened season might be all you really need you have four pitchers get really hot that might be that's all you need to make the playoffs theoretically and we have expanded playoffs this year too
0: No, we do not have expanded. Oh, we
1: don't? I'm wrong. Okay, I shouldn't be doing a podcast about baseball, Justin.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so that was heavily rumored that uh, in order to increase revenue this year, uh, baseball was going to expand it to have seven teams in each league make the playoffs. But uh, as it turns out... It will be the same format that we've had for the last eight or nine years in which only five teams from each league make the playoffs the way it's been. Um, In terms of how the schedule will affect the Mets, I think the biggest way where this may affect them in the sense that they're only going to be playing teams from the NL East and the AL East is that you'd say the NL East has four, four average to above average teams. The AL East probably has three average to, if not great teams. So... Their schedule will arguably be a lot tougher than maybe teams in the other divisions, which might make it tough for a wild card to come out of the NL East. Yeah, I don't feel
1: great about their playoff chances. I think they'll be a good team, but
0: without the expanded playoffs, I don't
1: know. So they can beat up on the Marlins, um, but the other four teams in their division are excellent. And then if you look at the AL East, you'd think that Tampa and the Yankees are going to be very good. Maybe Boston takes a step back. They had a really bad offseason. Toronto's so young that they, they really could overperform or underperform Baltimore's bad. So you got two teams you can theoretically just keep beating up on, but the rest of the teams in both divisions aren't gonna be pushovers. You look at some of these other divisions, exactly. like the AL Central, where you have Kansas City and Detroit. Um, there's other divisions where there's multiple teams to beat up on. They're not gonna be able just to rack up wins.
0: Exactly. And the thing is, so in a regular baseball season you play 20 out of 162 interleague games. So, you know, if the Mets were to be playing the AL East versus teams in the NL Central playing the AL Central, 20 games over 162 has a bit of a minimized scheduling effect. When that's a third of your schedule and you're playing 20 out of 60 games against that interleague division, uh, now you're looking at a situation where the schedule difference really could impact. Uh, where those two wild cards come from in the National League, especially when you look at the fact that in the NL Central, uh, I mean the Cardinals are always good, the Cubs are usually pretty good, uh, Cincinnati is an is a, an up and coming team. I believe the, the Brewers were in the playoffs last year. Like you've got some good teams there in the NL Central, and if they have a chance to beat up on the really bad AL Central for a third of their schedule, uh, it definitely gives the teams in that division uh, an advantage in terms of. Getting one of those wild card spots, and that's not even. And we didn't even start talking about the NL West, but uh, from a scheduling standpoint, I think that's where it really could affect the Mets. And it's and like we said, it's going to be tough to win this division. Atlanta's really good, Washington and Philly could be good. Uh, and then you
1: have to play a ton of games against the Yankees, who may be the best team in baseball, if not the, the second or third best yeah. team in baseball.
0: Yeah, and we uh, we know
1: the Mets don't usually do particularly well against the Yankees.
0: Yeah, and that's definitely a disadvantage too. Again, because teams in other divisions won't have to play teams as good as the Yankees. Uh, you know, they'll get to play the likes of the White Sox and the Royals. But um, Though
1: I, I got my <laughs> eye on the White Sox. I uh, I got Lewis Robert on my fantasy team. I think it could be an absolute monster. Um, maybe they I should have, have, have said a lot that, of really good young talent. Maybe I should I, have said the, the Tigers. Could have maybe I should have said the, the Tigers, Tigers are going to be v- yeah they're going to be very bad. The Royals are going to be really bad. Um, yeah, I mean, might take a step back.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing you could say is, uh, so the way this schedule will work is you are going to play 10 games, you're still going to play 10 games against each team in your own division. Uh, so the Mets will play the Marlins 10 times. Uh, but then they which, have to play Philadelphia, Washington, and Atlanta, who are three
1: playoffs. Yeah, players. I guess I was
0: trying to say, well, maybe the Marlins, that, that's a big schedule advantage over some of the teams in the other divisions, but the Pirates will probably be really, really bad. So, I think the, the NL Central the NL East teams East is get that is the only too.
1: Division, I think the NL East is the only division with four legitimate teams who could win the division, right? I yeah. Don't, I don't think there's anything even close. So, they're just yeah. in a huge disadvantage. For whatever reason, all these teams are peaking at the same time. We don't usually see that in baseball, right, Justin? Usually you see two, maybe three teams. I know there's that one year in the AL East where the Yankees, Boston, and Baltimore are all really good. But normally you don't see three or four teams. Usually not four. Times.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've, you've especially with this new playoff format, we have seen some years where both wild cards will come out of the same division. Uh, so you might have three really good teams in the division, although usually for that to happen, it means that the fourth and fifth teams are really are bad. Yeah, so that those three teams had a chance to beat up on the two really bad teams in your division. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case because there's only one bad team in the uh, NL East with these four better teams, but guess we'll just have to see I, how you know, that this,
1: this, this is going to go off your outline a little bit but i have a question for you okay so if the mets make the playoffs and if the mets win the world series what do you what part of your their team do you think will carry them because i i kind of have a this is kind of a setup because i think i think it's something that's different than in the past but what do you think what do you what aspect of the team do you think will carry them if they end up going deep into the playoffs
0: so I, I have a feeling that you're talking about the other really big difference with this 60-game season, and that's the fact that there's going to be a full-time DH in both leagues this year. I think well, that's that, where you're going and with I,
1: this. Where I'm going is I think the, they have a lot of talent on offense, and they have a lot of depth on offense. Um, so I think if they do make the playoffs and go deep, it's because they're going to just be scoring a ton of runs, which I think legitimately could happen. I think their pitching staff could be you know average to above average, but I think they have a chance to be really special on offense and go like eight or nine deep in their their lineup and be good.
0: Uh, I I agree with that, and I think their team kind of like it has a lot of the aspects of that an American League team would have. So I'm kind of glad you brought this up because this really makes more sense here than lower down the outline where I had it. But uh, this whole DH thing is the thing I think so. A minute ago, we were just saying about how the Mets are in this really tough division that might be hard to win. But unlike some of these other teams, and I'd really have to analyze the rosters of the uh, the other teams in the NL East to see how much of an advantage this gives them. But with this full time DH this season, I-, I can't imagine there's a National League team that this is going to help more than the New York Mets.
1: Um, well, it's, and it's not just Cespedes, who everyone
0: exactly. is excited about
1: seeing as a DH. It's also Dominic Smith. So even if Cespedes goes down, you have Smith. Smith's got a great bat. He's actually a decent first baseman, too. You yeah. had no place to play him, and he's not a good outfielder. So yeah. you, you have a lot of options now, where you didn't in the past.
0: Yeah, and another well, thing Cano, I mean,
1: you know, maybe you play Cano sometimes at DH, so you don't have to use him as much in the field. He gets hurt.
0: Yeah, and I think one point that because again the easy thing to say is oh great they're going to be able to uh, have Cespedes DH every day now, and hopefully uh, he can DH every day and stay healthy and uh, uh, give them some of the production that we've seen from him in the past. But where I think this is such um, an advantage for the Mets is that so if this was if this had been a standard season uh, where there was no DH like every other year in the history of the National League has been, I actually think that Ioannis Cespedes would have created an enormous problem for this team. Even if Ioannis Cespedes was hitting at a decent rate, I just think it would have really created so many issues for this team because you would have had to play... Uh, Cespedes in left field. And I feel like it would have put everything really out of place for this team. So if we play the other scenario where coronavirus never happens and the season goes off as scheduled, if you have a healthy Cespedes, he's a guy who you're paying a ton of money. He's a really... you A ton of money. Yeah, you know, a proven big time hitter. And he's a guy you have to play in left field. And I just think this creates so many issues because now you're either in a situation where, well, if you want to play your best offensive lineup, you're now going with... A defensive outfield that uh, is really atrocious because you're probably looking at a defensive outfield alignment of Cespedes in left, Conforto in center, and then either McNeil or J.D. Davis in right. Uh, and if we're you play Nimmo, Justin, well, th- well, that, that's why I said if you're playing your best offensive lineup, Nimmo's a very good offensive player.
1: He his uh, his advanced. You're making a face. We we're on. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna
0: show. No, he some, is he some, is a good he's offense,
1: a very good offensive player. He is a
0: very game. good offensive player. I just don't think he's a better offensive player than Michael Conforto or JD Davis.
1: I don't either, which is why I think that at the point you're getting to, having a DH is so valuable
0: because exactly because. You can pick all of those guys. Exactly. You can play all these. Also, it gives a place for everyone to play because if you're trying to now get Cespedes into the lineup every day, it's like, well, now you know you might have one day where you have to feel like you have to throw Jeff McNeil in right field. Another day where maybe oh, to get Cespedes in the lineup, it means we automatically have to bench Cano, moving McNeil over to second and JD and McNeil or McNeil to right or playing JD Davis at third. Like I just feel like it throws everybody all over. Uh, the place defensively, whereas now everything just falls into place. Cespedes DHs, uh, you can play well, Justin, JD Davis every day in left field. McNeil every let's day not at third do base.
1: The, let's not do their lineup. Let's do their what well, we think their start. Let's not like go through their. Um, I'm sorry. Let's not go through their their lineup, but let's go through their their players who are going to start. So let's start with catcher, and then we could say whether we think they're an average, above average, or an elite hitter. So Wilson Ramos is going to be starting a okay. catcher who's. An above-average hitter. and say right? he's above-average. So then mm-hmm. at first base, you have uh, clearly Pete Alonso, who's an elite hitter. Second base, who you think starts most days? Cano, Robinson Cano. Who is average to above-average at this point in his career. Yeah, he's definitely at least average. Short stop, you have um, Ahmed Rosario, who last year was moving from average to maybe above-average and still has some room to grow.
0: Yeah, and he's another guy who I think... Uh, benefits from the American League rules just because he's a guy who I think could profile very well as a nine-hitter. Yeah. Uh, Though it doesn't on. get
1: on base as much as you'd want from, like, a nine-hitter. A nine-hitter is like an alternate leadoff. I'd see, like, Nimmo being a really good nine-hitter. I, I could see that, that, too. One of those Nimmo's two Nimmo's got a really good um, on-base percentage where he doesn't have uh, great power numbers. Um,
0: yeah. So then a third,
1: who who you think starts at third most of the time? I
0: think, I, I think because of... Uh, this situation with the DH it'll allow Jeff McNeil to just get third base every single day which I think for a player of McNeil's ability it's important to just give him a position and not play him at like four different positions like they did last year yeah
1: he's like the best at getting on base I've ever seen from a player like he's I'd yeah. say he's almost if he keeps his up he's good he's an elite hitter so that's
0: yeah. their I mean influence. the guy I mean in his first full season last year he made the all-star team
1: yeah he's he's amazing so yeah. the infielders who aren't playing the infield in this universe are Dominic Smith, um, and Jed Lowry, and J.D. Davis. And J.D. Davis has the potential to approach, you know, above average to elite hitting status. Yeah. So now their outfield, their outfield is. So I do um, think
0: J.D. Davis though will now be their everyday left fielder.
1: He should be. His bat's amazing. So then he starts with probably Conforto, and Nemo.
0: Yeah, I would say that that's going to be the uh, the everyday guys, and it just it gives everybody an everyday position now, as opposed to having shuffling everybody to fit Cespedes into line. And if Cespedes is healthy, he'll DH most days, and you know when guys need days off, it provides a lot of flexibility because if you need to give Cespedes a day off, you could DH uh, Dom Smith, or you could play Dom Smith at first base and DH Alonzo. You could you know you could use that DH spot for Cano some days. uh, and, you know, play uh, uh, J- uh, the corpse of uh, Jed Lowry, <laughs> I suppose. He made an appearance. Someone tweeted a
1: picture of him. He's still alive.
0: Not really. Or, or that might just be the Luis Guillorme spot.
1: Right. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, exc- their, their lineup is exciting. They could actually go nine players deep in their lineup, which is not something you frequently see. All guys who... No. Profile is average to above average hitters.
0: Yeah, there's yeah, I, I would agree with that. There's not a single, there's not a single guy there who you would say is below a, is a below average offensive player. And we've seen in baseball before that the collective can have an
1: impact on the individual, where like all ships are risen because um, all the players are good, and then you can't really pitch around players. We've seen offenses in the past like everyone like has numbers that are surprising because everyone's above average. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that that's the Mets this year.
0: Yeah, and it's also a lineup where opposing pitchers don't. There's not really that guy where you get the huge break uh, because even you know guys that you figure would be hitting lower in this order, whether that's J.D. Davis or Wilson Ramos or Brandon Nimmo or Med Rosario, like none of these guys are particularly easy outs. Um, I mean, as you said, Med Rosario might not be the best like on base guy because he doesn't walk a ton, but he's a guy who at least the second half of the year hit for a lot of average. Like he's in no way is he an easy out. And then he. I mean, becomes- the thing, since City Field opened, the thing that I've been begging them to do is develop a team with
1: guys who just have a really high on-base percentage. Um, so with the exception of Cespedes and Ahmed Rosario, everyone else in the lineup gets on base a lot. Um, so I'm, I, I'm very hopeful for this team. I think, I haven't looked at the advanced numbers, how they, like, stack up against other teams, but I imagine it's pretty good on offense.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I agree there. Yeah. Um, uh, so that that covers the uh, DH angle of this and how advantageous it can be. And again, I think it needs to be said that it's hard to imagine that there's really any other National League team that this will help more than the Mets. Because who else has a guy like a Ioannis Cespedes who's clearly motivated to have a big year and get one more big contract? He's made that abundantly clear that he's not retired. Even though he's 35, he wants that last contract and has no intentions of retiring. And we've seen how good contract your Ioannis Cespedes could be.
1: I'd argue that it's not just one player. I'd argue that it's two players. I would say that they have Cespedes and Dominic Smith, two very, very good hitters who don't have a great spot on this team without the DH. and now they have two of those guys. You could still move Smith for some from some depth elsewhere or a pitcher or a relief pitcher and still feel like you have an elite DH. Um, yeah. So I think they're, they're helped more than any other team, maybe by like a large magnitude because they have yeah. two of these guys. They, did, yeah. they had no place to play Smith. They put him in the outfield. He was trying, but... And he, he, he was an right absolute outfield. disaster out in the outfield.
0: Yeah. Also, it's interesting because now, uh, whereas, you know, if, if things had played out ordinarily, maybe they would have tried to uh, flip Dom Smith for a reliever or something like that. And now, I'd say there's absolutely no chance of that happening because, one, Dom Smith's a guy that you may really, really need. I mean... You know, obviously I don't want anybody to get hurt, but if somebody were to get hurt, uh, you know, Dom Smith could find himself in a situation where he gets a lot more playing time, whether, you know, it's DHing for Cespedes or... You know, you end up shuffling some things around. but uh, I mean, And he's is... also your DH next year
1: and moving forward.
0: Well, if if the, uh, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in 2021, if they're going to keep the DH. but Neither I'd... one of us pretends to be baseball insiders. Our expertise is in misery
1: because we follow these three <laughs> awful teams. But based on what I've read, it seems like the DH is here
0: forever. It would certainly seem that way. And if the DH is here forever, Dom Smith is a guy you definitely want to hold on to. Absolutely. And for nothing else And the other thing too is you have such an asset and such a great player in Pete Alonso. So the you know having two first basemen like that. I mean, if you have the ability to uh, get Alonzo's bat in the lineup every day without having to play him in the field every day, uh, you know you just like the long term prospects of him better too. Because I mean, this is also going to be a sprint of a season. I think they're going to be playing like sixty games in like sixty six days, which you know is going to have its wear and tear. I mean, guys are going to need some days off because that's definitely less days off than you normally get in that sort of stretch so you know if you can get alonzo's lineup bad in the lineup like 59 out of 60 games and maybe eight times he dh's that's a positive and you don't yeah. and you know dom smith would be more than happy playing first base he's a pretty good glove there
1: yeah he's a very good glove um so I think we're in agreement that if this team goes far, it'll be because they're hitting and then their pitching was okay. I don't think there's a lot to talk about with their pitching. Um, it's still, it still projects to be an average to a, I, average to a so starting I, rotation.
0: So I, I, so I actually disagree. So I, I think there is um, a couple big points that we have to talk about with the pitching. Um, so I think one thing that's interesting, and this is something that I think maybe will help some other teams more than the Mets. Uh, so... As we know in baseball with younger pitchers, uh, many times pitchers will be on innings limit or pitch limits, or maybe not pitch limits, but certainly innings limits. And uh, you would think that this year, inning limits are going to be out the window, considering that 12, maybe 13 starts would be the absolute max that you could have in this 60-game format. So, and the Mets don't... I don't know if I agree
1: with that, but you can finish your point, then I'll make mine. I'm
0: saying, well, the Mets don't really have a guy that profiles into uh, one of these guys where, oh, they need to protect uh, so-and-so's arm to, uh, you know, uh, protect a future asset. Like, all of their guys are you know, definitely veterans at this point, and there's certainly no one that you'd have to protect in a... uh, like, there's certainly no one there where they'd be like, oh, we have to worry about the number of innings this guy is throwing. Where maybe on some other teams, if they have some younger pitchers, they could sort of just pitch these guys every fifth day and not have to worry about it. Because in 12 starts, you're talking about a situation where maybe you're going to throw a max of like uh, whatever, you know, 12, <laughs> you know, maybe like 80 innings this year or something like that.
1: I actually think that goes the other way. I think teams are going to be more reliant on their bullpens. And I've actually heard that there's some teams that actually might not have a starting pitcher some days and they'll just go with an opener. It creates an incentive to treat each game like a playoff game. And if a pitcher gets into trouble and you have a deeper bullpen because your roster is deeper because you have access to your minor leaguers, why not just go to your bullpen?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting so, I mean, if point. You're,
1: yeah, I think actually relief pitchers are going to be much more utilized. I think you might see guys like Lugo being utilized earlier, um, Gazelman being utilized earlier and being used as like a starter at like the fourth inning and pitching 3-4 three, four times, and you can go back to that reliever a lot sooner because they don't have to use that wear and tear for 160 games. They just have to do it for 60. And um, so I think I think you have a guy who can go a while out of the pen, you may use him an awful lot.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, and I think that's a good way to uh, transition into uh, the Mets bullpen because one thing that scares the hell out of me this season is the fact that Edwin Diaz is probably going to be the closer again uh, I don't know. You think, I think they'll start him, but I think they'll move pretty quickly into Lugo as their closer. Well, here, here's the thing. So if this was a regular seat, so Edwin Diaz obviously was an absolute dumpster fire last year. Couldn't seem to handle New York. Uh, it, you know, a lot of people were, including myself, were under the impression that they should have tried to move him this offseason for a bag of baseballs. Brody Van Wagenen clearly uh, did not want to do that, did not want to uh, trade together.
1: You don't dump an asset at at its bottom. You try to rehab it first. He cost them nothing.
0: Well, I, well, I, I think you could make the argument that he cost them a playoff position. He cost them you a spot in the to- playoffs last year. By blowing so many the, games. They were only three could, games out of a wild card spot last year.
1: You could make Lugo your closer, have him come in the 7th or 8th inning. If he stinks, not use him again. Um, I think
0: my fear I think my fear is, is that, so if this was a normal season, and you started the season, and Edwin Diaz had been really bad in April, and let's say he cost them like two games early in the season and you move on, you could say, alright, we, we figured this problem out very early on. Now, in this shortened season where every game just holds so much more importance, if he blows two or three games early in the season, that could very, so easily cost you a playoff spot in a way that it may have not in a regular season. Like these games are going to be at such a premium, the Mets don't really have time to afford Edwin Diaz to figure his shit out, and that just really, really, really scares me. Um, I mean, I hope it goes the other way and that they decide, you know what, we can't mess around. This is a sixty-game season. We have to go with the guy we trust. Uh, we have to, you know, let Seth Lugo start closing games from being Hell, I'd rather have Familia closing games. From the beginning than Edwin Diaz, especially. I don't know if you've seen uh, pictures of uh, Familia, but he he dropped a lot of weight. He looks like he's in tremendous shape compared to where he was last season. I mean, Um, there's a chance that their bullpen is the
1: best bullpen in baseball. I mean, it would require a lot of things to go differently. It would require Familia to return to old form and Diaz becoming the elite player he was on the Dodgers. Ah, sorry, the Mariners. If that happened, they could have the best bullpen in baseball. That's a big if with DS because they also have Betances who has to stay healthy. They have Lugo who was absolutely elite last year. Um, they have Justin Wilson who, when he's healthy, is as good as any you know middle relief pitcher in baseball. Like they mm. could have an elite pen if everything shakes out the right way, which doesn't usually for the Mets and in particular doesn't usually for their bullpen. But there's reason to be hopeful there.
0: Yeah, there's some reason to be hopeful. I, I have a tough time believing that both Diaz and Familia will turn it around. I'm more optimistic with Familia because we've seen him be good in New York before. I think Mickey Calloway and his staff just wildly misused the guy the last two years. I'm more confident that this staff will uh, allow Familia um, to uh, to be good, at you know, to use him in ways that are conducive to him being successful. Oh, one other thing we should mention with the. Uh, the weird caveats with baseball this season, though, that could really, uh, I think, hurt the Mets if they're not smart about it, is um, have you heard about this extra inning rule this year?
1: Yeah, I don't remember exactly
0: So what it is because this is going to be this crazy sprint of a season, uh, they don't want games going like 15, 16 innings this year. So what they have decided is that when games get to extra innings, uh, the game is going, or the inning is going to start with a runner on second base. They should do that anyway. We don't, how much fun is watching a 20
1: inning game? I don't how know. Do I, I have a lot of
0: fun game? memory. I mean, it's they are. It's also
1: bad. It's bad for the players too. And it's bad for your team moving forward. It forces you to make decisions that may be not in the best interest of your team.
0: I guess that's true. You could wear out your bullpen trying to win an 18 inning game and then nobody's available the next day. It, it is true. all the time. Yeah, but I don't know. It just it feels like it's a way to like cheapen the game. To be fair, they're not going to do this in the playoffs. If they did this in the uh, playoffs, that would be ridiculous. But uh, I, but with guys like Familia and Diaz, I just think you have to be careful because I mean this is baseball. Games go into extra innings all the time, and I just think they need to be really careful because when I, especially I was just talking about using Familia in. Uh, in ways that are conducive to getting the most out of him. And he's always been a guy that's way better at starting innings than coming in the middle of innings. And yet, Mickey Calloway and his staff always would put him in there with runners on base. Uh, well, you so, can't
1: bring in relievers in the middle of innings anymore, Justin. Unless oh, they get hurt.
0: No, 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 no. Sorry. That's another new rule with this season. A guy has to that's pitch. That's my favorite rule ever, I think. Well, no, no, no. A guy has to pitch to three batters. So if a guy begins an inning, if he gets. One out and allows a walk and a base hit, you can then take him out of the game after he has pitched a three batter. So there will be mid inning changes. That's amazing. It's just, yeah. It, uh, it was
1: ruining baseball to pitch, come in, pitch to one player, and come out again and come back. Yeah.
0: In and it's again, just- if teams are smart about it, you can still do it. It's just like if you have a lefty specialist, you have to use him in spots where, okay, I'm going to bring him in with a runner, you know, I'm going to bring him in to pitch to a lefty with a runner on and two outs. Because they did say that if a guy finishes an inning, he does not have to pitch to three batters.
1: Interesting. That makes
0: sense. So yeah, you can still use your lefty specialists. You're just going to have to use them in different ways. Like I said, you know, mainly to get tough lefties out with two outs in an inning.
1: All right, we should we should keep moving. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about of the about the Mets before we move into our? Uh...
0: So uh, we've got so somehow we're over a half hour into the pod and uh, we've yet to mention the name Jacob Degrom. Uh, this guy has been the best pitcher in baseball the last two years, and he is on the Mets. I guess he's just so reliable that uh, you just don't question how he's going to help the team. But uh, having an elite pitcher like a Degrom, especially in a year where other teams say they're going to be going, uh, you know, to their bullpens a lot, I'd almost argue this is even more of an advantage. In the 60-game season, because you're in a... There's times
1: where you could pinch him every four days. Like Why the fuck not?
0: Yeah, and I think because this is going to be such a sprint of a season, I I think it would be in the Mets' best interest to do that. Like, if you have to pass over a Rick Porcello or Michael Waka start to get him on his fifth day as opposed to every fifth turn to the rotation. I I say do it. Why not? I mean, the guy's not going to pitch. it's maybe going to pitch like 80 innings this year. So I, I would just pitch him as much. Like, if you could figure out a way to get 13 or 14 starts out of him, that extra, you know, game or two that he pitches could swing your whole season.
1: Yep. Um, and, of, he your, the, and he saves I mean, your bullpen. There's not a lot to add about DeGrom. He's the he's best awesome. pitcher in baseball. Or yeah. one of the top two or three pitchers in baseball. And he's reliable. He's unlike any other Met athlete, Met or uh, New York athlete. is they're, they're good and they lead to winning. Right? How, many, how many times have we had the superstar who flared out or didn't pan out? Where we're still waiting on, he's just amazing. Good, go DeGrom, go. One yep. guy to keep your eye on, Justin, uh, David Peterson. He's the maybe the Mets' best pitching prospect. He's on their sixty-person roster. He doesn't project as like a DeGrom or a Syndergaard. He doesn't throw that hard, but he has some good control. He's consistent, and I think he'll actually be in their starting rotation, if not to start the season, pretty soon. I think one of Porcello or Waka ends up not being in that rotation, and Peterson ends up in his way, in his way in. So I think they'll have a young arm. Um, who he could use a lot because he doesn't throw that hard. And I, I, think, I think he'll be there sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's an interesting prediction. Uh, one final point on the Mets' uh, starting rotation. Uh, another name we've yet to mention is uh, Marcus Stroman. Uh, they brought him over midseason last year. Stroman's in a contract year. He now only has uh, 12 starts to uh, prove himself for a big... New contract next year. I mean, this is a guy that's always been a really good pitcher. Struggled a little bit when he first came over last year, but was much better over his last three or four starts. And, uh, He's a little I think... bit wasted
1: on the Mets, though. He's super reliant on the defense behind him because he gets ground balls. And the Mets had one of the worst defenses in like baseball history last year. So hopefully just from regression, it gets better. But some of what he does, they just they can't take advantage of. So I think he could yeah. pitch really well for him and still not be as good as you'd expect just because the Mets aren't optimized for him.
0: Although I would argue that I think the Mets defense will be better this year than it was last year. Uh, I think the DH thing really helps because I think one of the issues for the Mets is they were playing they were consistently playing guys all over the place last year. I just think it will help the overall defense having like positions where they can put a guy in the same spot every day. Uh, last year was the first time J.D. Davis ever really played the outfield, so year two of him in left field. Uh, that should certainly help. Uh, not having to play Michael Conforto in center field as much and being able to play Nimo or Jake always, there, I that should you help
1: your your infield though I also to more runs if they're bad and Rosario he improved in the second half a lot he did he's not a great defensive shortstop and he's they don't not, have anyone who's very good at third oh
0: so I, I, I I think though jeff McNeil I, I, I think he'll be better playing the same position every day. I think they kind of put him in an unfair spot last year where they had him playing four different positions. If he's playing one position every day, I think that will Maybe. help a,
1: a lot. I, I think McNeil will be best in the outfield and not in the infield, but we we shall see. Yep.
0: Uh. So I, th- I think that pretty much covers it. I think we're, uh, as, as it seems every year, cautiously optimistic about this team. There's certain aspects of this 60-game uh, season, mainly being uh, – the DH that uh, could really help this team. Uh, Other thing, you know, the schedule and just being in this really tough division could make it uh, difficult, but we'll see. Um, I know we're both craving live sports to be back and we're excited to watch this team. So uh, hopefully uh, things go off without a hitch three weeks from now.
1: I hope so. Um, So our shtick of the day, each time we do a podcast, we're going to try to do like a fun list because people love lists and we love lists. So our our shtick this week is going to be the five worst Mets contracts of the past twenty-five years. A couple of things to note about this: it's um, either a free agent contract or a player you had on your team and you gave a contract to. Um, and well, I also think we it's important.
0: Thinking, well, I think it's important to say that we decided to do that this week because it's Bobby Bonilla week. Earlier this week, the Mets gave him his uh, annual, I think one point, it was one point uh, two million dollars, uh, something he will get for yet another fifteen years through the year twenty thirty-five. So in honor of uh, Bobby Bonilla Week and the crazy contract that they gave him 20 years ago, or the crazy, uh, yeah, I guess we call it a contract they gave him 20 years ago that still pays this out to him, uh, we decided, why not do the five worst contracts of the past 25 years? I didn't have Bobby Bonilla on my list. I thought it would be appropriate. I didn't either.
1: They're only giving him a million dollars each year. It's it's not that bad.
0: Um, Yeah, I think for our listeners, I think a lot of people forget exactly... What happened? So the Mets uh, traded. So the Mets they had Bobby Bonilla in the early 1990s. They bring him back in nineteen ninety nine. His last Mets moment was uh, in the ninety nine NLCS. Uh, him and Ricky, while a game was going on in extra innings, him and Ricky Henderson were playing cards in the locker room. Uh, so Bobby Benia uh, was under contract with the Mets for the two thousand season for 5.9 million dollars. The Mets decided that instead of paying him, they were going to give him this uh that they were going to defer his contract with a ton of interest. And basically the way it ended up working out is that instead of just paying him the 5.9 million dollars back in 2000, he now gets 1.2 million dollars every year on July 1st through the year 2035.
1: Good for Bobby Bonilla
0: um but like you i did not have this in my top five because i've always felt that even though it's comical that they're still paying him that 1.2 million dollars that they're giving him every year has never strung the been a you know it's never strung the franchise or prevented them from doing things it's just something kind of funny that happens every year that the willpons have to pay this out yeah so we'll try to get into our list pretty quickly but i I don't know if you had a similar experience
1: to me where I thought there were going to be so many of these, and there actually weren't as many as I was expecting. There were some players, I don't know if like Luis Castillo is on your list, but if you like Google worst Mets contracts, like he comes up. He was okay for them, and his his wins above replacement when he was on the team weren't that different than when he was on some other teams. Um, a lot of the players who I thought of who were just terrible and cost a lot of money, they traded for um, so I was I wanted to include like Robbie Alomar and Jeremy Burnett, but they didn't give those guys a contract. They traded for them, and they were they were horrendous. But they weren't players who the Mets went out and signed as free agents. Yeah. Um, and one other thing, what were
0: you gonna say? Um, I, I did find a decent number of them, um, but in a lot of these situations, uh, they brought in guys who were just bad, but it work. But they weren't guys that were necessarily all that important to the team, like whether they were crappy relievers or fifth starters, just guys that. They may have signed to less years and less money, Um, but uh, yeah, it is true though. There weren't as many of the major like oh my god contracts as you would have thought because so many of the things that happened were just like bad trades. I think if we did the Yankees, it'd actually be more more interesting. I feel like the Yankees
1: have given out more contracts to players who didn't perform for them and were like long, really bad contracts. Um, The Mets, I, I didn't get as many.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to start because uh, of what you just said. Um, Luis Castillo was number five for me. And, uh, and similarly, I didn't know if it was totally fair to have him at number five. Uh, so Luis Castillo signed on November... I, I put the exact dates that these contracts were signed. So on November nineteenth, two 2007, the Mets signed Luis Castillo to a four-year, $25 million contract which is not outrageous money. Uh, His first year, he had a decent year. But the main reason I decided to put it is that in the end, he wasn't very good. He definitely did not live up to the contract. And famously, uh, he dropped the fly ball against the Yankees. Uh, And they play that clip all the time. It still gets played to this day. We still hear about it from our Yankee fan friends that Luis Castillo dropped the pop-up to cost him that Subway Series game. And it's something we have to live with through the end of time. And it's a clip they're always going to show so I had Luis Castillo at number five. So the reason I didn't
1: is I'm going to read to you his war. So I really relied on war pretty aggressively in this. Um, I think um, other stats can lie. I wanted a way to compare players across time. So I wanted to see how valuable they were versus a replacement player, which is what war does. Um, so it gives me a way to like analyze Luis Castillo versus some of the other players on my list. So his war in his last two years in Minnesota were 2.3 and 1.4. So his first year at the Mets, he was 1.6. So he actually outperformed um, his, how he did the year before in Minnesota. And then his next year is 0.4, which wasn't good. And in 2009 for the Mets, he was 1.4 again. Um, so really, like, I wanted guys who cost a lot and then um, their performance dropped pretty precipitously when they got to the Mets. And at least relying on this statistic. I didn't even look at, uh, like, OPS or batting average and stuff like that. I just wanted a way to compare across time. And WAR gives you the ability to do that. So he didn't, like, underperform... As much as some of these other guys, and he was he was relatively a bargain. Um, so I, I didn't. Yeah, I
0: think like if it less. wasn't, I mean, it, if it wasn't for the Yankee pop up, he would not have made my list. But In that's fact, why the guy... we're a good. Uh, that's why we're a good team. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I can look at the stats, and you got the memory for everything, which I don't have.
1: So yeah. we're we're a good partnership. Yeah.
0: My oh, I forgot to say my, my honorable mention for this week was a uh, was a guy that they definitely at least overpaid for last season. That that was Jed Lowry. Uh, they gave him two years and $20 million, um, in year one of that contract, he did not record a single hit. So I didn't include Lowry just cause he still has this year to play. Um, that's why he was my honorable mention. I didn't have him in the, uh, the top five, but, uh, so far that looks like a bad contract. He also showed up with some mysterious injury in, uh, spring training. Um, and I mean, obviously they're going to be paying him less because all baseball players will be, be making less in 2020 with this prorated uh, shortened season. But uh, Jed Lowry is going to be a bench guy for this team. And a guy that you're paying $10 million a season to, that, that's clearly a, a disappointment. But again, maybe he does end up having a bigger role than we think. So he, he's, right. Jed Lowry is my honorable mention.
1: All right, here's my number five. I'm going to read you a quote. You ready? Yeah. So, Kazuo was the Alex Rodriguez of the Japanese game. Um, Matsui plays Hurt and doesn't know where the trainer's table is. I think he's going to be very, very successful in the United States. Um, He was on his way to becoming his country's Cal Ripken Jr. Um, So, Kazuo Matsui is my number five. I almost didn't include him just because his contract was pretty reasonable. It was three years, $20 million. He was horrible. So his war in his first three years on the Mets were negative 0.5, negative one and negative 0.8. So he cost the Mets games in each of his seasons. He was He was not a good baseball player. Um, I forgot how much money they had to pay just to like get in the door. Like I know sometimes when you're bidding on these international players, you have to pay like an, like a nut up front. Um, so maybe he actually should be higher, but he was he was horrible, just horrible, horrible, horrible. And uh, he was my number five. Um, almost didn't include him because he didn't spend a lot of money on him, but people thought he was going to be great, and he was not.
0: Yeah, I think I just didn't remember him being as bad as uh, the way you just read it. Because the way I did, I, the way I decided to go about this practice was, is uh, so if you go on Baseball Reference and you click on the team page, so every you know every team has a page for each season, and then you can look at basically every transaction that they made. Uh, every year and I just kind of went through and I sort of just grabbed the ones that like caught my eye of like the guys that I remembered being like super bad and I didn't re- I honestly I didn't remember Matsui being as bad as those numbers uh <laughs> certainly Here's, just indicated I also forgot OPS, just how much 727 hype.
1: 652 689 um, he played 114 games 87 games 70 games
0: he was he was horrible
1: 44 rbi 24 26 not not a good baseball player not the yeah. Alex Rodriguez of Japan.
0: Yeah, uh, I didn't consider that one, but that, that that's, a, that's a really good one. Uh, uh, who's your number four? So at number four, I have Ioannis Cespedes. Uh, now, what we have to remember about Cespedes is that the Mets, they traded for him at the trade deadline in 2015. He was great in 2015. Uh, he helped them get to a World Series. Then after that, they signed him to a one-year contract in 2016. 2016, again, he was great uh 280 batting average 354 on base 31 homers 86 rbis uh helped them get that wild card spot just then 354 on base percentage isn't good all right fine but he was still he was a really good player in 2016 that helped them get that uh wild card spot he still hit 31 homers had 86 rbis uh, so the baseball
1: nerds would say you your eyes are tricking you because he hit clutch homers and his stats while good were an elite but but you can digress
0: also I, I would bet that so he played in 132 games in 2016 i'd have to look at the numbers but uh i would say they definitely had a way better record in those 132 games than they had in the 30 games without him i mean that was the, that's the been the whole history but you say that it's
1: other things too but you can, you can keep going
0: okay but i'm not even talking about that part because that was when he was on the one year deal after that 2016 season the mets signed yoanis Cespedes to a four-year, $110 million contract. Since he signed that contract, in 2017, he played only 81 games. Numbers weren't bad in the uh, in the uh, 81 games. Hit 292 with 17 homers and 42 RBIs. Since then, 2018, played only 38 games, hitting just nine homers and 29 RBIs, and hasn't played since. So... The output on a $110 million contract, it has not been there. He has been terrible. This has been an absolutely awful signing since the end of that 2016 season. So he is number four on my list. Uh, I had him at number two. I almost had him at number one. Um, it was the largest contract in the
1: worst contracts. I, uh, I'll i give you the numbers from other contracts when we get to those players, but $110 million over four is a lot. And as you said, 81 games, 38 games. I'm going to read you his war. So what was it? Um, in 2017, his WAR was two, which was actually one of the better ones in his career. Um, in 2015, it was only 2.1. 2014, it was 1.5. So he's not a player that the advanced stats like as much. In 2018, his WAR was 0.8, and then in 2019 there was no WAR because he didn't play. Um, yeah, not not a good contract. That's a lot of money just being lit on fire.
0: Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, I think base. Okay. So uh, who's your number four? Oh, my number four. I have a quote for my number four. I don't have a quote for all my guys, but I have a quote <laughs> for my number four. Okay.
1: Um. So this is our friend Omar Minaya. Um Adding Oliver Perez to the rotation was a priority, Minaya said. We've really accomplished what we set out to do. Good job, Omar. Um, uh, Oliver Perez is not a good baseball player, and he never was a good baseball player. We can use him in the present sense, because I think he's actually still pitching. So he, he is. So what's great about war also is let's you can... Comp- compare um, uh, hitters to pitchers because you they you know just gives you the, the wins above replacement so what year did they sign him to the contracts they traded for him in 2006 and in 2006 his war on the Mets was negative 0.2, which is bad that actually means he he cost you games um, did they give him that contract in 2007
0: so they signed Oliver I'm actually really really upset with you that you only have him at number four he's my number one.
1: Oh, I think the number one's not even close. Uh, so
0: We can get to that there. we we'll contract to that.
1: Wasn't, it wasn't... I mean, it was here's, bad. Here's the
0: reason why I have Oliver Perez at number one. So Oliver Perez, on February 2nd, 2009, they signed Oliver Perez to a three-year, $36 million contract. So $12 million per year. And this is why he clearly needs to be ahead of Cespedes. And I thought, even the other player, that uh, I'm pretty sure is going to be your number one. So after... So the Mets... Uh, they brought in uh, Oliver Perez in a midseason trade in 06 um, wasn't very good in 06 but you know famously ended up having a pitch for them in the playoffs after Pedro Martinez and El Duque got hurt was okay in the playoffs um, was okay in 2007 and 2008
1: you uh, know 1.8 win- war both years
0: yeah it was 15 his win loss which is not a great indicator but still over those no, two seasons useless. he was but he was twenty-five and seventeen, so he was winning them games. He was out there every fifth day winning them games over those two seasons. And the Mets then decided after that two thousand eight season to give him twelve million dollars a year for the next three years. Here's why I have him at number one. In two thousand nine, he started fourteen games, went three and four with a six point eight two ERA. Six point eight. Which year was that? That was two thousand nine. Nine. In two thousand ten was
1: negative one point two.
0: And in two thousand ten. He started seven games with 17 overall appearances going 0-5 with a 6.8 ERA. He had a 6.8 ERA each of the two seasons. They ended up cutting him after that. The Mets paid him $36 million to throw 110 innings with a 6.8 ERA going 3-9. and 9. That means... Like, he wasn't even a guy that you could throw out there. Like you said, his war was so bad, he cost you games. At least when Cespedes has played, he's been an average to above average player despite being heavily over overplay- overpaid. This is a guy who they paid $36 million and wasn't even good enough to like throw in the back of your bullpen. That's how bad he was. He wasn't even remotely... Uh, competent as a Major League Baseball player. like A lot of these other players, you could say, well, if I was paying them the league minimum, if I was paying them the league minimum, at least I could throw them out there and they don't kill me. Oliver Perez was an automatic loss every time you put him out there and, again, just was not a serviceable Major League Baseball player. And they paid him $36 million. That is why I had him at number one.
1: I have three players ahead of him. Here's some of my reasons why. So, one he's a bargain compared to my other three players and making much less money. Um, and for two of these guys for less years also, and here's my big reason he performed pretty similarly to how he did before the contract. While My other three players were just, just an unbelievable oh, That's not true.
0: That is not even remotely true. He performed so much worse after the contract in 2007, in 2007, he gave the Mets 177 innings, with a 3.56 ERA, with a and going 15 and 10, that's a pretty decent pitcher. 177 innings, 3.56 ERA. 2008, he wasn't as good, but he threw 194 innings. That's a lot of innings. Definitely saves your bullpen. That's there's a big value to that. A lot of times, I don't know if WAR properly evaluates that, but he threw almost 200 innings in 2008. Uh, started 34 games for them that year. That was that was a that led the National League and games started. Uh, so, I mean, for two seasons before that, he was at least a serviceable Major League starter that you could throw out there every fifth day. I don't know how you could say his numbers after the contract were even remotely close to what he did the two years before that.
1: So, let's get into my other three players, because their performance dropped off even worse than Oliver Perez's did. I don't see how you could say that, but okay. Uh,
0: let's get so into... So, we could can, we
1: can do it by math. So... Uh, the WAR for Oliver Perez was one point, and it dropped to one point two. So that's a difference of about three.
0: Oh, I see what you're doing here. This is why, so war, can be, in, this is why war can sometimes be. This is why war can be sometimes wins. stupid, though. He went from being a very serviceable major league pitcher that you could rely on to at least give you a quality. That could give you, you know, a lot well, of innings need, and throw out there. You, need every a met- fifth day. you don't
1: want to just rely on your feelings. You need a metric to compare over time, which is why <sighs> I use WAR. It lets you compare pitchers to hitters. So my number three, if you search for, all um, right, who's your
0: who's your number three?
1: This is not a guy who a lot of people remembered and wasn't on a lot. of... Like if you search like worst mess contracts, like didn't come up a lot. Um, it's it's Mo Vaughn. So Mo Vaughn. Oh, had a
0: interesting. Okay. So Movon had a similar drop off. This he is my number. It, this is my number three as well. But I think you're actually you're you're misrepresenting what you're saying, a little bit. So would he, Well, I haven't even gotten to say what I'm saying. So I'm glad I'm misrepresenting it. Okay. So. <laughs> so, technically, this should be Kevin Apier slash on. So. In on let me I'll, I'll I up. have very fond mem- memories of Kevin Apier. I went
1: to a game where he pitched like a three hitter.
0: Okay, so on December eleventh, two thousand, the Mets signed Kevin Apier to a four-year, forty-two million dollar contract. And in that first year with the Mets in two thousand one, he had a very good season. He went eleven and ten with a three point five seven ERA. He threw two hundred and seven innings that year. Uh, again, very good year. Um, he was the guy that they, you know, brought in to replace Mike Hampton, and he probably wasn't as good as Mike Hampton, but he still, whatever. He was very good in 2001. The Mets traded Kevin Apier to the Angels after that offseason for Mo Vaughn. Kevin Apier helped the Angels win a World Series in 2002, and then Mo Vaughn did what he did over the next three seasons for the Mets, uh, which was, in which they paid him the remarkable uh, sum of $46 million.
1: So his war drop Again, from this 1. is my 8. number
0: three as well, is the Kevin right. Epier so slash War. So his Movan. war
1: dropped from 1.8 to 0. 0.5 and 0. 0.7. So it's about three. It's a similar drop to Oliver Perez. Oliver Perez, maybe a little bit more, but the money isn't even close. Movon's contract was three years, $46 million, while Perez is $336 million. So it's, it's a $10 million difference. Um, for a player who dropped almost about the same. So I think the numbers would say that Vaughn was more of a disappointment. Um, I think it's close, but I, I, I would I would give it to Vaughn. Also, just people don't remember Mo Vaughn. People were really excited to have him on the Mets. He was a good, he he was did a good hit player in the past, like in a really th- good player in the yeah. past. And he was number four in MVP voting in 1998 made the All-Star team. Uh, but he was he was not good on the Mets. At the all. And the he longest him a lot of money.
0: yeah the longest Mets home run I've ever seen in person was actually hit by Mo Vaughn. Vaughn did have hit 26 home runs for the Mets in 2002. One of those 26 home runs I remember was this absolute moonshot off the top of the Shea Stadium scoreboard. Uh, that was a memorable moment in person. Again, I think the reason I had this in three, and the reason uh, I clearly had Oliver Perez ahead of this is. Uh, Movon did hit 26 homers and 72 RBIs in 2002. I also think you have to roll this in with the, because they directly traded Kevin Apier for Mo Vaughan, uh who I think was already under contract with the Angels. And Kevin Apier gave him a good season. I just don't see. I, yeah, the money was worse, but I mean, obviously, I had this at number three, but um, it's also bad. Yeah, so my number bad.
1: two. My number two, I said, was where I was Cespis. I also think that's worse than Paris because way, way more money and just not playing at all. Um, who was your number two?
0: Uh, I already told you my... Uh... Oh, no, sorry. My number two, um, who I think has got to be your number one, is Jason Bay.
1: Yeah, he was really bad.
0: He was really, really bad. Um, I probably should have had Jason Bay at number one as well. I just sort of... I kind of wanted to be a little controversial here and uh, pick Oliver... Perez as my number one over Jason Bay well the Uh, money
1: was similar per year it's not it's not that different so it's four years 66 versus 336 so I mean it is different they gave Bay more money but before you get into it so his war for Boston in 2009 was 5.2 5.2 that's really really good then it dropped to 1.8 with the Mets 1 negative 1 and 0.5 so that's the largest drop in production we saw out of any of the players on this list Arguably, maybe Cespedes being worse because Cespedes had no production, but he was he was very bad, and the expectation was he would not be very bad coming from Boston.
0: But yeah, you you go. Um, so the reason I decided also to have Oliver Perez over Jason Bay is I was sort of looking at it under the idea that if you were giving if you they were paying Jason Bay the league minimum and not sixteen million dollars, those first two years with the Mets. Jason Bay hit 259 in his first season with a 347 on base. The second year, he hit 245. You could at least make the <laughs> argument that in some sort of no. perverted universe, if he was making the league minimum, he could have hit no, eighth for it. you every day and not no. absolutely kill your team, as opposed to Oliver Perez, who was an automatic loss every fifth day. Uh, but I mean, there's no way to there's no other way to cut it. I mean, this was an absolutely horrendous contract. This is we one of those situations
1: where his regular numbers actually eliminate how bad he was even more than his advanced numbers. So in 2012, he hit 165, <laughs> and his on base percentage was 237.
0: Yeah, that was. And then in
1: 20, really... there's yeah, that's that's so bad. I didn't realize you know, it was even that bad.
0: Yeah, and, and another thing that makes this just so so bad as well is, do you remember when they signed Jason Bay? Do you remember what they uh? who the other player they were considering trying to sign was? I don't. So the two big uh, free agent outfielders that offseason were Jason Bay and Matt Holiday. And the uh, Mets, in their infinite wisdom, decided to go after Jason Bay instead of Holiday. And the way they spun that was um, Jason Bay will be able to handle the pressure better because he played in Boston and that Matt Holliday was a uh, product of a uh, course field in uh, Colorado. You know what uh <laughs> Do you know what um Matt Holliday's numbers were after the, Well first off, Matt Holliday made the All-Star team in 2010, 11 and 12. That was His, for the
1: Cardinals, right? That was for the
0: Cardinals. His numbers those year those years. 2010, uh, he hit 312 with 28 homers and 103 RBIs. 2011, 296 2275 2012, 295-27-102. He made the All-Star game in each of those seasons. In fact, he made yet another All-Star team with the Cardinals in 2015. So he had a prime that extended even beyond those first few years. Uh, Jason, Matt Holliday was clearly not a product of Coors Field. Matt Holliday was a really, really good baseball player. And uh, not only did the Mets get the lesser baseball player, they got a guy who uh, you couldn't even put in the lineup every day and, you know, basically stole $66 million from the Mets. Uh, I actually do have a Jason Bay uh, story that I wanted to tell. This is something that always stuck with me. So um, I want to say this was probably around like 2011 or 2012 one time. Uh, I'm listening to... Mike Francesa, and a caller calls up and says that uh, he is he doesn't want to give his his real name, but that he was a former major league utility, major league baseball player for the Pittsburgh Pirates, major league baseball player, and I I think he called up because there was a steroids conversation uh, going on, you know, going on on Mike Francesa's show, and he said that uh, while he personally never used it. There was absolutely uh, usage in in the locker room that he was in. And he said that star players were the ones that he saw using it on a daily basis. And my first thought was, if this guy is telling the truth, and he was a Major League Baseball player for the Pittsburgh Pirates... It makes a lot of sense that maybe Jason Bay was one of those players, that maybe that was definitely helping his performance in Pittsburgh. Maybe he was still getting away using it in Boston. By the time 2010 rolls around, baseball had really, uh, for, you know, for the most part, cut this out of the game. And maybe he was just simply a product that uh, he couldn't perform without performance-enhancing drugs. That's a good story, Justin. He also he was seventh in
1: uh, MVP voting the year before the Mets signed him. So. I know it really
0: it is crazy when you look at how good he was for the Red Sox in two thousand nine.
1: So yeah, I, the reason I had him over Perez is just it felt like the most Metsy free agent signing ever, where you sign a guy who seems like he's a pretty short thing, and then he just becomes unplayable. Yeah. Um, All right. Let's. Uh, so something we do on this podcast is we do a cr- our crap rank, rankings, where we rank um, how crappy our our three favorite teams are. I think. As for right now, it's pretty easy to do. I don't think it will take very long. Um, our number three is the same. It's the Knicks. The, oh yeah, the Knicks. I mean, they, yeah, they're an absolute dumpster They really dumpster have no player. hope. They have no really good players. Um, um they had
0: their own draft pick this year in a year where there's nobody that's being regarded as like a franchise changing guy. And they're not even like first, second, or third in draft rankings. I think they're
1: six right now. Um, RJ Barrett had one of the worst free throw percentages in the whole NBA last year as a perimeter player. Um, and then free throw percent, like they, if you're looking for reasons why a guy could get better shooting. Um, And Barrett's three-point shooting was awful last year. You typically look for free throw percentage. Like if a guy is a very good free throw shooter, you could say maybe it's a little fluky why they're not shooting well from three, Um, but it's very unusual for a guy Mm -hmm. to be an awful free throw shooter and then improve shooting. There really is no hope. Um, they have one uh, good player who other teams would want. It's Mitchell Robinson. They don't really Yeah, have what do you think the... Ch-
0: ch- so I believe Mitchell Robinson, because he was a second-round pick, has one more year in his rookie deal. What do you think the chances are that uh, Mitchell Robinson is still playing for the Knicks in 2022? If you had to put a percentage on it. I'll say 40. Oh, I was going to say like 20.
1: I mean, a lot of the, the players who the Knicks could end up drafting, if you look at a draft board, are centers. Um, so it seems likely that they'll end up drafting a center and trading Robinson. It it doesn't look good with the Knicks at all. We don't have and to talk that, about the Knicks anymore. And Justin.
0: oh, well, and we I think just, I think we do just have to mention though that the Knicks are also seriously considering bringing in Jason Kidd as the head coach.
1: I can't talk about that. It makes me too upset.
0: <laughs> I really I just don't want to. He's he's abused his spouse. He's
1: underperformed everywhere he went. He does he says he's a defensive-minded coach who had one of the worst defenses in the NBA. The moment he left, the Bucks became the best defensive team or one of the top three defenses in the league. If anyone signs Jason Kidd, they're dumb. They, they don't know what they're doing. He was a great Jason, basketball player. He should not be the head coach.
0: Jason Kidd was arguably the best player in New Jersey Nets history. Notice I specifically said New Jersey Nets history. And uh, after becoming the uh, coach of the Nets, he wore out his welcome there in one year. One year is all it took. Well, he
1: said, "Fire the general manager. I want to do everything." Um, yeah, but, yeah. I don't, I don't. Let's, want to let's, talk about let's that. move on there. Uh, number, number two, two I got is the Jets. also very easy. Is is the Jets? Um, yeah. There's reasons to be hopeful. We, re- I think, our favorite player on the Jets right now is their general manager Joe Douglas. Um, yeah, I didn't fair. read the article on ESPN yesterday. Look, doing a deep dive into Darnold, his numbers have been horrible his first two years, but there's reason to be optimistic. Um, it's hard to feel great about them moving forward if Donald can't become like a top eight quarterback in the league we haven't really seen any indication that he could be beyond how he played in college, but they're definitely moving in the right direction and he is the general manager of all of our teams who I have the most confidence. In. Yeah.
0: I think one thing though, um, if, if you're going to point to some positives, uh, with Donald, I think, um, two things, one, uh, he does have excellent footwork, um, you know, here's a guy who probably, given how bad his offensive line was the last year, probably should have been sacked uh, a lot more than he was. I think it'll be interesting uh, to see him this year with what should be a much better offensive line. And I think another thing is uh, that's important with him is uh, he he did have a win. I mean, albeit uh, it may not look pretty, but he did have a winning record in games that he started last year. He was seven and six in games he started. And uh, things could have really, really gotten south after the Monday night Patriots game, where uh, he famously said that he was, uh, ESPN caught him saying that he was seeing ghosts. And uh, he definitely had games after that where he was playing pretty well. So um, those are some reasons I think you can be optimistic. He doesn't get down on himself, he has good footwork, and hopefully, he'll be playing with a much better offensive line this year. He's also
1: extremely accurate.
0: He. Throwing picks
1: is different than accuracy. So he's accurate with the ball. He just makes bad decisions. Uh, And then last, we don't have to talk about them. Clearly the Mets. They have a really good team. They're loaded from top to bottom. Their big issue is that they're playing in a division with other really good teams. I think if they're playing in any other division, you would say that their odds of making the playoffs are very, very favorable.
0: Yeah. But, uh, you know, hopefully uh, they'll be able to get it. And even if they don't win the division this year and they end up in the wild card game, uh, the Mets have the uh, best pitcher on the planet. That's true. So I'll take my chances uh, in that one-game playoff. This was
1: uh, this was fun, Justin. Um, I'm looking forward to watching the Mets and actually having real sports to talk
0: about. So. I agree. All right, have a good one. Happy July Fourth. Happy, Happy birthday, America. Thanks. All right. See you. Adam. Bye. Bye.